Jesus' life. Jesus is near the end of his life. He's actually now starting to make his way towards Jerusalem. And of course, we all know that at Jerusalem, we are, he's going to give his life on the cross. He's going to come out of an empty tomb. We know it's a very difficult time for the disciples as they get closer. They don't understand it all. And as they get closer, Jesus is going to start to reveal more and more and more. And the people start to get, particularly the religious rulers, start to get more and more angry with Jesus. And, and so the story, actually we're going to look at two miracles this morning because they're so similar um, and yet they both are emphasizing the same thing. And yet in those miracles, the actual miracle part of it is a smaller part of a bigger picture. And, and that's what we want to look at this morning. So uh, both those stories are found in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 13. They, they both occur on the Sabbath, not on the same Sabbath, but they both occur on the Sabbath. And so that becomes the focus of the miracle. A number of Jesus' miracles occur on the Sabbath, and up until now, Jesus has, has, has done miracles on the Sabbath to show that he has authority over the Sabbath. Now this, these two miracles change it, because Jesus is done showing his authority over the Sabbath. Now what Jesus is going to do, he's going to show these people the real purpose for the Sabbath. Um, now let me give you just a quick history real fast here, all right? We don't believe in the Sabbath per se today, all right? The Sabbath was an Old Testament concept. Uh, the Sabbath was a principle, uh, or a, a day that the people of Israel set aside, and it was Saturday. So Saturday was the, the end of the week, and they would set aside the last day of the week, and they would focus on God and resting and all of that. When Jesus comes out of the tomb, Christians now take the first day of the week, Sunday, as a day of worship. So it shifts. So for us, although we wouldn't say we typically hold a Sabbath, the principle is still important. Because the principle was you work six days, you rest one. That was established at creation, long before Jesus, uh, long before the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments and all of that. So the Sabbath principle is what we want to focus on today. We will look at the mechanics of it too, but for us today, the application would be, you know, somebody goes, well, you know, do we have to do the Sabbath? No. Do we have to rest one day a week? Yes. That's a creation principle established in creation, continued into um, the Sabbath and practiced by Christians for the last 2,000 years as well. So um, let's talk about the, the context. So Luke chapter 13, here's what it says. On a Sabbath... Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 weeks, 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day for what, from what bound her? When he had said this, all of his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Here's the scenario. Um, at this time, there was a ruler of the synagogue. That guy was in charge of the whole service. 
And so apparently Jesus was teaching or in the area or had showed up at the service, and the guy said, hey, look, I know you're Jesus, I know you're a rabbi, I know people follow you, I know you're a great teacher, why don't you speak this morning? And so as was the custom, Jesus would have been um, at the front teaching. And so what happens is a lady walks in, she's crippled, um, she's all hunched over because she had been sick for 18 years. She had had this crippling disease for 18 years. And Jesus does something very, very unique here. In that particular setting, what would have happened is there would have been a, guy, a side for the guys and a side for the women. And she would have been sitting on the women's side, probably in the back. Jesus, when he sees her, is moved with compassion, and he calls her out. So can you imagine? I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle of teaching, and... Um, Okay, okay, who's, who's that back there? Okay, Jeannie. Jeannie's like walking around back there right now, okay? And so let's say all of a sudden I go, hey, Jeannie, come up here. Now all of a sudden you got to realize, this is a male-dominated culture. Women didn't speak at the, t- at, at the synagogue. Women didn't have a role that way. And so for Jesus to call her up, and so she's kind of crippled, and she comes, not that Jeannie's crippled and come walking up, but timing works out good. Uh, and so she comes walking up, and now... Here's the thing. You've got to follow the story very, very carefully. Because notice what it says. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. So Jesus calls her up and he says, Woman, you are set free from your, from your infirmity. Now, here's the, here's, the, here's the thing that you need to know. At this time, there is great debate about what is work and what is not work on the Sabbath. And there, just like in any other, any other religious system or any other belief system, there are conservatives and there are liberals. And so what happens is there's a big debate. Some people were saying, well, you can just do about anything on the Sabbath. The conservatives were saying, hey, you know, you can't work on the Sabbath. The ultra-conservatives were even taking a bigger step, and they would start to define what was work. So, for instance, here's a question for you. It's taking medicine a violation of working on the Sabbath? Depends. If you had to cut the pill or grind the pill, that was work. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath. If, on the other hand, you were, that's what some people believe. They believe that, in other words, now if you had cut it or ground it the day before, then it was okay on the Sabbath to take that medicine. But if you pulled the pill out and went, oh, I forgot to cut this in half last night, and you went to pick up a knife to cut it in half, that was work on the Sabbath. That was a violation of the Sabbath. Your kid's out playing on the Sabbath, and he falls into the cistern. Can you get him out? Depends. Okay? Because if he was going to die... Most of the belief was you can pull him out. If his life was not threatened, the Qumran people taught you had to wait until the end of the Sabbath to get him out. So you have to listen to your kids scream all day because to throw a rope down and pull him out was a violation of the Sabbath. That was work. So now notice this. So here's a question. When Jesus calls the lady down and he looks at her, 
and he speaks to her and says, Woman, you are now freed from your infirmity. Has Jesus worked on the Sabbath? No. Because she is healed, and who healed her? God. But notice what the text says. It says that then he put his hands on her. He now healed her. He now worked. He now broke the Sabbath. Until that point, there was a great debate, and most would have argued Jesus did not heal. God did. The minute he reaches out and touches her, he has now worked on the Sabbath. Now, the synagogue ruler who invited him now has a problem. Because, guess what? He's indignant. Because now, in the synagogue, his guest... who he brought in, has now violated the Sabbath in front of everybody. And he has to address the issue. And it says he's indignant, and he stands up. And notice, he doesn't talk to Jesus, he talks to the crowd. Indignant because Jesus is on the Sabbath. The synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. You see, they taught, they taught that their focus was you can't work on the Sabbath, you can't work on the Sabbath, you can't work on the Sabbath. And so, for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath was work. He touched her. He violated our Sabbath. And he's indignant. And he stands up and he basically says this. We're closed for healing on Sunday. Or on Saturday, it was the case. We're shut down. You need to be healed. You got six days to do it, but don't come on the seventh day because it ain't happening. But we'll be open the next morning. And you're going, that's the most bizarre, exactly. But this is what the people believe. This is what the people practice. This is what the leaders taught. And notice what happens next. It says, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now, this is your guest speaker. (laughs) Your guest speaker now. He's been called down. The guest speaker now stands up and goes, you hypocrites. And listen to the mastery at which Jesus confronts them. He says, Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and leave it out to give it water? He said, look, every one of you this morning watered your animals. You went over to where that ox or where that that donkey was tied up. You untied it. You walked it over. You let it get some water. You walked it back. You tied it back up. He said, every one of you in here does that. And that's okay. And then, listen to what Jesus does, because this is so, so powerful. Notice what he says. He says, then should not this woman, again, remember, we're in a culture in which women are put here, men are put here, and Jesus goes, because this is what Christianity does, Jesus goes, and Jesus says, then not, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham. Because see, the men always said, you know, well, we follow Abraham. We follow Moses. We are are men. We follow. And he went, whoa, whoa, whoa. She's a daughter of Abraham. She has just as much value and linked to the Jewish history as you do. And then what does he say? This daughter 
whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her. He said, look, you know what I did this morning? I simply untied her. And every one of you did that this morning with your animals. I just did it with a person. He said, I freed her from something that's tied her up and bound her for 18 years. And there's not a one of you in here that can do that this morning with your animals. So you're a hypocrite for telling me that what I did was wrong and different from what you do every day. And the people go, when he said all this, his opponents were humiliated. You want to know why they wanted to crucify Jesus? This is a guy who's threatening your livelihood. I mean, this guy, everybody's following him. They're not listening to you anymore. They're looking at you going, you're right. We're following a bunch of idiots. We're not going to listen to these guys anymore. That, that makes common sense. That's perfect sense to us. We do it with our animals. Why can't he heal on the Sabbath? And then notice what? But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he were doing. That's how went, wow, it's awesome what he's doing. That's a story in Luke 13. Listen to the story in Luke 14. The difference is, here we deal with the woman, now we're going to deal with the man. And notice what he says. One Sabbath, so after, again, you understand Sabbath, Sunday, the differences. Okay, so I'm going to kind of use them interchangeably now, so just tell me. So after church on Sunday, Jesus went to eat the house of a prominent Pharisee. So this is a guy who had some importance. And notice what it said. He was being carefully watched. Now we don't know if the Pharisee was bringing Jesus there to set him up or if it's just the Pharisee's friends were kind of nitpicking with Jesus. But whatever reason, Jesus knew he was under the microscope. And then notice what it says. There in front of him was a man suffering from droopsy or crippled or the same kind, of, same kind of thing from the woman. We know the woman was tied to, to demon stuff. We don't know about this guy. But notice he's put in front of Jesus. Now here's an interesting question. How did he get there? Who put him there? And a lot of people believe they were trying to set Jesus up, which takes this story to a whole different level in a minute. You'll, you'll see it in a second. So Jesus now is either sitting there and there's somebody, I don't think they brought him into the house because that wouldn't have been a common thing. I think on the way out, it's kind of like they're probably out in the courtyard thing, probably in the fellowship hall or whatever else, and there's Jesus, and, and they bring this man from droop, with droopsy all crippled up and stand him right in front of Jesus, and he goes, hey, how are you doing today? And they're watching, what's he going to do? We know he healed a woman on the Sabbath that was like this. What's he going to do with this guy standing right in front of him? And notice what the story said. Jesus, before he does anything, asks the Pharisees and the experts in the law. So this guy had a lot of cronies who were very intelligent, and, and they all tend to hang together anyway, and they all like to have these little debates. So Jesus looks at them and says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? It'd be like me coming into church this morning and saying, what's the best NFL football team? Okay, there's going to be debate. Okay, there's going to be, there's no way everybody's going to agree on the same one. There's going to be debate. And there's going to be a very heated debate depending on how sports oriented you are. When Jesus says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? That's a loaded question because 
all of the nuances of it and all of the debates that there. And one, one rabbi taught one thing, another rabbi taught another thing, and they kept bringing it down further and drilling it down farther and farther. So he asked them a loaded question, and notice what the text says. It says they remain silent. The idea that Pharisees and teachers of the law stayed quiet tells me this is a God thing. Because they knew no matter what we said, everybody that we know that's gone one-on-one with this guy loses. And we just heard about what happened in the synagogue. We're not really interested in being the next victim of Jesus and his, and his argumentative skills. And notice what it says. So taking hold of the man, he worked. He touched him. He didn't speak. He touched him. Taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Um. A lot of, lot of lessons. Let me, let, me, let me pull three out that I think will help us this week. Here's, here's the first one. Up until now, when Jesus heals in the Sabbath, it's all about Jesus and his authority over the Sabbath. Here it changes. Jesus argues and Jesus demonstrates that the Sabbath is about people. In fact, he's going to go on later in Luke chapter 14, and he's going to continue to eat with these guys, and he's really going to rock their boat because he's going to talk to them about how they treat people in services and how they give preference one over another and all of those kinds of things. But I think there's a principle here about the whole idea of a Sabbath thing. And we talked about this a little bit this morning in Sunday school, where, look, from the beginning of time, God said, I've got a rhythm, I have a pattern in life. And the rhythm and pattern that I have in life is 6-1-6-1-6-1-6-1. Work six, off one. Work six, off one. Work six, off one. That's the pattern that I have established for creation. I've established, by the way, all of life has a, has a rhythm. The one thing you'll learn about God is God is a God of order and God is a God of, of rhythm. There are four seasons. The sun goes on a certain rhythm. The moon goes on a certain rhythm. Um, Plants and animals bloom, do certain things to a rhythm, to a pattern. And one of the things that God says is, look, at creation, I'm setting it up this way. You work six, you trust me, and you rest on one. You take one day aside, and you set, and you make it about me, and you make it about other people, and you make it about recharging, and you make it about relaxing and enjoying and seeing what life is really, really all about. Six one six one six one six one. That's how I set it up. Jesus comes on the scene, and these people had made that one day about rules, about what you can and can't do. And Jesus said, "No, no, no, no. It's about people." Here's a woman that's bound eighteen years. I'm going to help her out. I don't. It's the Sabbath. That's what the whole Sabbath thing is all about. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or not? It's about people. That's what Jesus is trying to get across. Later, Jesus is going to say this. Um. And I, I'm going to get this wrong. You know what I mean. Man was not made for the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He said, look, I set this up for you. It's a matter of trust. Can you get it all done in six days or not? Can you trust me that I will take care of all the stuff that you have on your plate in six days? Or you've got to rob yourself and rob, rob yourself of that day and say, oh, no, 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 God, I can't get it done in six. I've got I to have that extra day. It's about how you look at it. 
And here's what I, here, here's, here's my, my focus. I mean, you get it because you're here today, okay? But I'm just going to try to reinforce it for you on the importance of it. It is important that we learn to take a day to unplug. The faster your life goes, the more important that becomes. The, the more stuff you have on your schedule, the higher priority that needs to be. Um, I, I was in Mayo this week, um, and, you know, everybody's always amazed at Mayo, and, you know, I love, I'm not knocking it at all. Um, they do an impressive job. They, they, they have everything. But basically what they told us is that everything that was happening here was in sync with everything they would do there, and, and the doctors were nice. I love the organizational system of Mayo and, and all that kind of thing. But the thing about Mayo that amazed me, and most of you probably, any of you who've been there, you may not get it, but I, I get it, and I'm learning about it, and, and, and it's awesome. I think it's like the coolest thing in the world for me. It's, it's one of the, here, here's the thing. I walked in, um, all of our meetings were in the uh, Gonda building, and I walked in um, in the subway, or the, the subway part, in the main thing there, um, and uh, when I went in, one of the things that I noticed was a Chihuly glass sculpture hanging from the ceiling. I know what it costs. I know the artist. I know what kind of work he does. And it, you, you can spot it a mile away. And I'm like, whoa. I noticed all the marble. Uh, we went up to the 10th floor. We were having our meetings. Get off the elevator. And one of the first things that I noticed is there's a glass sculpture. Uh, it's a hand-bone glass thing in a case. And then I went over and I noticed the glass thing with the, um, that had been etched and, and, and cast. And then I noticed another sculpture. I was fascinated with it. Absolutely fascinated with it. Um, as we were getting ready to go, um, on Tuesday, uh, I went down to the gift shop because I have this thing. I had a guy share this with me a number of years ago, and it's kind of my little thing. This is what I do. Whenever I have an important life event or, or something that really impacts my life, um, I buy a coffee cup. Okay. Uh, so like I, I have South Dakota coffee cups in Texas and stuff like that. And the reason I do it is this, and this is what the guy shared with me. He said, you know, he said, it's amazing how in life we forget stuff. He said, but in the morning... And, and I'm a guy who I get a cup of coffee every day. Okay, I drink at least one cup of coffee every day, maybe two at the most. But I get one every morning. I get a cup of coffee. And uh, he said, I always get a coffee cup from things that were memorable to me. He said, and what happens is, he said, what I find is it's a great reminder of that experience. So I don't forget it. So for the last three or four years, anytime I have an important event, I grab a cup of coffee cup. And, and um, my wife came on the other day. She's like, why are you getting rid of all these other coffee cups? It's like, they don't mean anything to me. That's why. I mean, the Monopoly one's cool, but pfft, so what? You know, um, you know, the M&M coffee cup's cool, but that doesn't mean anything to me. So, anyway, so I went to the, the, to the gift store to buy a Mayo coffee cup. And I thought this will help me remember. You know, it's not like I need to remember pray for Doug, but this will help me remember and, and, and share some of the things that God did in my life while I was here and did it. So I get, I get the coffee cup, and I see a book called Art and Healing. And in there, it's got all of the glass sculptures from all of the Mayo clinics, the main ones, and the whole history behind them. And I'm like, i got to buy this book. So I bought the book. I've been reading it this week. Here's what you may not know about Mayo's philosophy of, of, of health and healing and medical care and everything else. They believe very strongly that the architecture and art play a very important role in the healing of people. 
And one of the purposes of it, in fact, all their buildings are designed around being able to display art. And it's not just glass. They have paintings. They have tapestries. They have history pieces. They have it. Because here's what they found. They found that when people are gathered together, they're so focused on their healing stuff and their sickness and their disease, they need something to stop and reflect on something that's beautiful, something that's intricate, something that is takes a tremendous amount of skill, takes a tremendous amount of ability because they want you to remind you that art and medicine are linked. And I found it fascinating because in essence, you know what that is? It's a Sabbath principle. It's the idea of taking one day a week and stepping back and going, God, I have this opportunity to enjoy this incredible thing called life. I had this day to sit back and reflect. I had this day to sit back and actually think about what you have done. I had this day to invest in people because I've been so busy at my job and all my stuff this week. But today I have a day that's set aside for nothing but people and you and your word and your creation and all the wonderful things you've given me because those kinds of things help you to get through the next week and to enjoy the next week and keep the next week in perspective. And I thought it was amazing. Here are people with life-threatening illnesses, and they have a group of people who spend money on these beautiful pieces of art so that people stop and go, you know what? There's more to life than my disease. And I thought, you know what? Again, you know, I wanted to come back here and go, okay, I'm going to put art like everywhere in the building. I, I, but that ain't going to work. We're in Hornick. Um, uh, you know, but, but I mean, I have to be realistic, okay? Uh, you know, <laughs> I just, but it, it's one of those things that it, it's so linked in the idea of being able to stop and reflect. And Jesus steps back from this thing and says, look, guys, you messed the Sabbath thing all up. You missed it completely. It's about people, and it's about me. And it's about doing good. And it's about healing. And it's about so many other things that you miss. I think a second um, principle um, that, that, that I see in this is this. Jesus, Jesus, these people are attracted to Jesus because he's real and authentic. He makes good common sense. And, and, and I think we miss that today. I think we make it about so many other things. Jesus just simply says, look, here's a simple illustration. You, you, you fed your animal this morning, didn't you? You untied it. What's wrong with what I did? What's wrong with what? How did this a violation of the Sabbath? I helped this person today. And I think sometimes we need to understand, you know what the world needs? They need people who are real and authentic. And some of you are so afraid to tell your story because you're afraid they're going to ask you questions you don't have answers to. Who cares if you've got the right answers? Share your story. Because if it's real and if it's authentic, God will use it. If it's genuine and heartfelt, and by the way, you know as well as I do, most people can spot a phony. In fact, that's what some of you have such a hard time with Christianity about because you've been exposed to a lot of phonies and fakes. And I get it. I don't like them either. But my goal is to not be that. My goal is to be different from that. And they want people who are real and authentic. I called somebody up this week and I said, hey, how are you doing? 
And they said, I'm doing blank, blank, and they swear, but it's like, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I said, good. And I know they were shocked. I know they were shocked to hear that from me when I said good. Because I said, you know what? I said, you're being real and authentic, and that's how you really feel, and you're not telling me what I want to hear because I'm a preacher. And God wants real, authentic people. And I want to challenge you. Some of you are like, you know, well, you know, I feel bad because, you know, you know, I told you how I really felt, and I shouldn't unload it with you like that. And I'm like, hey, you know, look, let's be real. I don't want the fake and the phony, you know. Um, I, I saw, it was interesting this week, I, I, um, one of the things that I do is I judge high school speech contests. So this week I was at, at East High yesterday judging speeches. I judged 35 short films, five-minute short film. Um, I was amazed at how many of them, um, and probably, I probably saw six or seven films yesterday. And you know what? You know what one of the things was about? Uh, the, the theme that a lot of these kids were doing short films about? Being real. Stop wearing masks. Stop being somebody you're not. Look past what you see. I thought, you know, even our kids get it. Even our kids have figured it out. They don't like that either. They want people who are real. And, and, and Jesus is just being real with these people about, look, this makes common sense. The lesson, I guess, that, I, that hits me the hardest, um, and, and I'm just going to wrap it up and close with this one, but the, the one that hits me the hardest is this. Jesus sees the need in this woman when nobody else does. Jesus is teaching. He's able to spot a woman back there that he knows what's going on, and he says, you know what? I, literally, one of the, one of the, one of the um, interpretations of this passage is literally he's moved with compassion as he sees her. Moved so much because, by the way, neither one of these people asked to be healed. Jesus heals them because he sees something that nobody else does. In fact, I would argue that what's really sad about this story is I genuinely think the Pharisees in the second story purposely used a person with a handicap to try to do something to Jesus. I think it's horrendous. They actually take advantage. They don't see him for a sickness. All they see him for is he's a way to trap Jesus. Let's use him. Let's use this handicapped guy to try to get Jesus. Not let's use this handicapped guy to help him. And, And I think one of the things that you see here is you see the compassion of Jesus and, and reaching out to these people because he wants to do something. It's not enough just to see them. He wants to help them. And I have to say, I think what happens, let me tell you, I'm going to share my story, and hopefully I'm not going to share too much, but one of the parts of my job that I hate is in order to do my job long term, a good pastor, I heard it said this way, A good pastor has to have a tender heart, but the hide of an elephant. And what happens is so many times in order to protect your heart, you build up a shell. And and, and you have to to survive. See, when, when I'm doing a funeral of somebody, I have to keep it composed. I have to keep order. Because if I get up in a funeral and I start boohooing and, and crying and everything else, everybody's going to start losing it. So you have to have this defense mechanism, so to speak, this shell that you put up to protect yourself. And I hate that part of this job. Because it's easy when I started, because the people that I were bearing were strangers. 
But now they're friends. They're people who I've done stuff with and impacted their lives and they've impacted my life. And, and it gets harder and harder and harder. It would actually be easier to up and move so you weren't getting close to people. I think that's one of the reasons. No, I'm not doing that, okay? But um, some of you are going, yay! No, uh, I, I mean, I'm not doing that. But I mean, <clears throat> for my sake, it would be easier because I wouldn't have to put up that shell like that. It's one of the reasons this thing with Doug has hit me so hard. Because it doesn't, there is no way I can do that. But yet I have to do that. So I have to sit there and talk to him as a friend, as a pastor, but yet this is my closest friend. I've got to figure out how to encourage him when the bottom line is every question he's got, I've got. But I can't say that without putting us both into depression. You know what I'm saying? That's why it's so hard. I mean, that's why when I ask you so much prayer for it, that's why this is a tough one for me. Um, it's why, by the way, I've had family members ask if I will, like when my dad died, they, they said, will you, will you do the funeral? I said, no. I, I refuse to do the funeral of, of, of my relatives. Um, and I, I said, it's very simple. And, and my, my, my nephews did it, and they did a great job, but I didn't say a word. Because it was one of the few times in my life that I get to pull the shell away and I don't have to be in the shell. And I'm not going to not do that with, with people that close. Um, that's why it makes it so hard with this job because many of you have become family to us. And so what, what I'm trying to get at is because of that, what happens is before you know it, you lose that compassion. I found it this week because, you know, I had spent the first part of the week putting up that protective shell and making sure it had all the layers to get me through that. And my wife, the other day my wife said something and I made some comment and my wife was running to the defense of this person and I stopped to realize, boy, that was about as uncompassionate as you could ever be. And then I started to realize this because of that's what's happened, you know, and, and so this really hits my heart when I see Jesus who steps into the scene that these people have seen this woman for 18 years and Jesus sees her and, and has compassion. These people had actually used this handicapped guy and put him in front of Jesus and Jesus has compassion on him. And it's a reminder to me that, you know what, we've got, we've got to be careful that in protecting our heart, we don't build up a shell so that we lose compassion. And I think some of you may have done that at work where there's that obnoxious person that drives you crazy and, and, and you keep pushing them away farther and farther and farther and farther away. And, and the reality of it is they need someone to show them compassion and reach out and, and, and help them. I, I, I think some of you have, you know, if you're like me, you get, you, you get so cynical about everything that that you see somebody on the side of the road and, and you know that there's something that tugs in your heart to help them, but the, the other side of your heart is protective and says, no, 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 I can't. You know, I know the other day, you know, this was a couple of weeks ago, I pulled up and there's a guy standing on the side of the road wanting money and stuff like that. And, and I, I don't advise this because of the culture we're in, but I felt comfortable enough. And I rolled down my window and said, hey, can I help you? And he goes, uh, yeah, I need some money for food. And so I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the ride to the shelter. 
And he said, no. I said, why? He said, well, they kicked me out because I, I fought with a guard. Great, come in my car. Um, that's where you're really happy to have a concealed carry with you. But no, um, I, I mean, really, it's one of those things where, you know, I think, I think it's, we're not careful. We can do that. We don't want to be people who are not compassionate. We don't want to build up the shell to the point that people, the people and God can't touch our heart. And I think that's one of the great lessons for me is that Jesus reaches out with compassion and says, look, I see something that you don't see and I'm going to act on it. I'm not just going to feel compassion. I'm going to do something about it. I think that's one of the great lessons here. And so my challenge and my prayer for you this week goes something like this. God reminds us that Christianity is to be real, genuine, and compassionate. It must see a need and then do something to meet that need. It must place a high value on people because God loves them so dearly.